0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit NorthwayChurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway family. Good to see you. Glad you're with us for guests among us today. I want to welcome you. My name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here at Northway. Grateful you're with us. We'd love to invite you here this morning to turn with me if you have a Bible with you there to Genesis chapter three as we continue our study in the book of origins, the foundations of the earth, everything that we know and see and experience. We're gonna learn about how it came to be here in this book, and we are two chapters in. And I wanna say this, every worldview, whether it's Christian or non-Christian, every worldview has got to find a way to answer four huge questions when it comes to uh, this world that we live in. Number one, why is there something instead of nothing? Every worldview's got to answer that question. How is there something when there should be or could have been nothing? Second question, why is what is as broken as it is? Like, why is our world so jacked up? What's wrong with the cosmos? How how did this happen? Third, um, is there any hope for change? Is there any hope for redemption out of the brokenness that is around us? And then lastly, how is everything gonna end? What is this all pointing to? Those four questions are foundational for every worldview. And uh, when it comes to those four questions, not just the book of Genesis, but the set that Genesis is contained in, which is called the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, every one of these books together are going to answer all four of those questions. We've already seen the first one addressed. Why is there something out of nothing? Genesis 1 and 2 dealt with that. The reason there is something instead of nothing is because there is an all powerful eternal God who said it, and it was so, who spoke creation into being, and it was good. It was very good. And we've seen that right out of the gate, the first two chapters. Starting today in chapter three, we're going to begin addressing the second question. What has gone wrong with the cosmos? Why is all that was, that was good in chapters one and two, not good anymore? So it seems. And we're gonna look at what is the problem um, explain, that explains all the brokenness that is around us today. And I mentioned before, every single person on the face of this earth, we agree the world is broken. The pain, the hurt, the conflict, the tragedy, the loss, everything that we experience is Universal, and we all understand something is not as it should be, but we all disagree on why today we are going to get god 's perspective on why what the scripture says about why the world is as broken as it is, and that'll lead us by the end of today into next week we 'll look at is there hope for change, and then as we progress through genesis we 'll talk about how it 's all going to end but Why is the world broken? Today, we will see the darkest event that has ever occurred in human history. And as the entrance of sin into our world, that which was good has become that which is broken. And I want you to see this, Genesis 3, here's our text, verses 1 through 7, seven verses today. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was there with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And we'll stop there. When we left off two weeks ago in Genesis chapter two, everything was good. Everything that God made was good. The world was just how God designed it to be. Creation was good, the garden was good, man was good, woman was good, work was good, marriage was good, it was very good. And we leave chapter two with this sentence and they were naked and not ashamed. Total innocence, total paradise found, total paradise created, no hint of anything broken. And that's what makes chapter three, verse one, so shocking because it just turns on a dime. We have this hard break, this sharp contrast, even the very first word now just doesn't do it justice in the English. In the Hebrew, it's very emphatic. In fact, it's It's the idea of a disjunctive. We've had everything that was a consecutive and God made and God made and God made and it was good and it was good and it was good. And then there's this disjunctive in the Hebrew writing that is now or but something has changed. And we are introduced here to a serpent. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This new character is introduced, this serpent. And it's an interesting play on words, by the way, in the Hebrew, the last sentence of chapter two, verse 25, the word naked is the word aruim. And it means innocent or unspoiled. The next verse in 3.1, the word crafty is a play off that word. It's not aruim, but it's arum, very similar. But way different. Arum means cunning or clever. Whoever this serpent is, is going to be, by his own nature, the very contrast to what is the nature of Adam and Eve that God has created. His nature is going to seek to undo the nature that God has made. It is a play on words. And it is meant to be shocking. Now, we're not told who this serpent is anywhere in this text. And in fact, you got to do some building in order to figure out who this serpent is. As you read through the scriptures, we begin to get more and more layers of identity to who he is. But it's not even to the very end of the Bible that the serpent is named. Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, we are told the serpent of old is none other than Satan, the devil. Now, a few things that we need to get straight right up front here. Who is Satan? Where did he come from? And why is he talking through some snake? All right, what's going on here? First of all, I want you to notice evil actually did not originate in the garden. Sin did. In humanity, it was introduced. Evil did not originate in the garden. It preexisted the garden. Now, where did that come from? When do we find this happen? A lot of it's wrapped up in understanding who this serpent is. Satan, we know Satan, the the term Satan, the Satan means adversary. The devil is translated slanderer. Like this is who he is, who we've come to know him, but he wasn't always that way. He had an original name that we have come to understand from texts like Isaiah 14 that named him Lucifer. And from Isaiah 14, we see Lucifer, the Latin term for Lucifer means day star or morning star. We're told in Ezekiel 28 that most likely this was a cherub. He was one of the head angels in the angelic realm named Lucifer and he was the radiance of God's glory, the the day star, the morning star of God's glory. Now, where did the angelic realm come into play? Job chapter 38 tells us that on the third day of creation, the angels were singing over creation. So we don't know exactly when the angels were formed, but we know they were formed by the third day of creation. So somewhere between day one, two, and three, God creates the angelic realm. He creates the heavens and the earth. This would be the heavens part, the invisible part, this angelic realm, and they are singing. And we know everything's good up and through day seven. Day seven is good, everything's great, So more than likely, Lucifer's descent happens sometime after day seven and before Genesis chapter three, verse one. Where in there and how long? I don't know. We'll find out someday. We'll get there. But it happens. And we get these hints of how it happened. Um, The double prophecies that are contained in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 38 give us some hints. Isaiah 14 says that Lucifer was filled with pride that he wanted to be like the most high God. Some point, he wasn't just the radiance of God as God had created him to be, he wanted what God was for himself. And he was filled with pride. Ezekiel 28 says, he was then cast down to earth as a judgment. And if, if you take Revelation 12 to be talking about this event, it may seem to indicate that when Lucifer rebelled, he took a third of the angels with him. And they were cast down as well, no longer called angels, but now called demons. And so Satan, just as he recruited other angels up in heaven to join him in his rebellion towards God, once he is cast to earth, he is seeking to do the same thing on earth with humanity, to get us to join him in his rebellion towards God. And all we're told is that he's introduced here as a serpent. The serpent is more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is a created being, this serpent. And I'm gonna tell you, I think most likely this is not a snake at this point. I think this is some form of lizard, some dragon, whatever, because it's not until chapter three, verse 14, we'll look at next week when he is condemned to slither on his belly from that point forward. So apparently he's not on his belly at this point. Some sort of serpent. How do serpents talk? If this happened today, be a little freaked out. If I went home and my pug starts talking to me, we've got some serious issues and I'm also gonna make a lot of money uh, off that thing. (laughs) But do animals talk in human language? No, that's not common. But we do see it in other places. We see it with Balaam's donkey later on. And the only way this happens is when the supernatural power overtakes something in the earthly realm. And we see the same thing happen in demonization. In the book of Acts, throughout the Gospels, is when demons take over human language, linguistics, and speak through the human agent. Um, There's no difference here. Apparently, though, it wasn't too alarming for Eve uh, in this text. She's not as shocked by it as I would be. Um, But this is early on in creation. In one way or the other, Satan inhabits or takes over the linguistics, of this, the linguistics of this serpent and begins to speak to her. Now, I want you to know something. Everything that he's about to speak, I'm about to walk us through. I want, to, I want you to see five clear tactics of how Satan works through temptation. What we're going to study here today not only informs our theology of sin and how the world has become broken, but it also shows us the continued tactics of the serpent who is alive and well today, still seeking to deceive and bring about rebellion in God's creation from God's original design. And I want you to just to know this, the original decree that God gave Adam concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A lot of people go, why is there two trees? Why would God even put a second tree if they're not supposed to touch it? If they're not supposed to eat of it? Why would he even put this second tree? Um, Is God evil? Did God create evil? What's the deal right here? Well, There's a lot in the sovereignty, in the sovereign and infinite mind of God that we're not gonna figure out this side of earth, uh, this side of heaven. But I will tell you this, it is very clear from the text, this relationship from creation forward was always meant to be built on trust. And it's gonna come down to two things that you're gonna see in this text. Is God good? Does God have a better definition of good than you and I have? And does he want it for us? And is God's word good? Can you trust God's word as ultimate truth in your life? You're gonna see five attacks of the enemy that are gonna to try to pick apart those two things, the goodness of God and the goodness of his word. And those are the same two things that are rooted in temptation today and in sin today. So I want you to see these things right here, these five things. The first thing I want you to notice the first thing that Satan's gonna do is he's gonna attack the authority of God's design. Notice the first thing Satan does is he approaches the woman. He said to the woman. Now, why does he go to the woman first rather than the man? I need you to know this is significant, but maybe not for the reasons you've been told. This is significant because we were told in Genesis chapter two that God appointed Adam as the head of his wife, which was a good thing. Wasn't an abusive thing, wasn't a sinful thing. It was a beautiful thing. And God gave Adam, the man, the direct command of Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, that here's the trees that you can eat from and here's the one that you can't. God gave Adam that that command to guard. Now, contrary to heretical belief, Satan is not approaching the woman because she is more gullible, because she is less intelligent, because she is weaker, because she is more easily deceived than the man. That is not why he's approaching her. He's approaching her because Satan is doing what he did from the very beginning in the angelic realm. He's attacking the authority structure of God. What God has designed for an intentional purpose, he's subverting it. He's doing an end around because he will not respect the authority of God's design. And this is the same thing he's doing today. One of the first things that Satan wants to do to get you and I to rebel is to distrust his authority. And we live in a day right now where all kinds of authority is being put out on social media, cancel culture, everything, everything thrown out there. And there's some good to it. There's some abusive authority that needs to be called out But if you're not careful, Satan's going to use this to lump God into that same mix. And he's going to try to deceive you, deceive the church, that God is not worthy of your trust. He is a bad authority. And his design is not for your good. And his word cannot be trusted. And he does that here. The second thing that he's going to seek to do next is he's going to seek to create distance between us and God. It's the second thing he does here. You see this in verse one, and it's subtle in here, but he said to the woman, did God, stop right there, your English translation, you're not gonna catch this. Genesis chapter one, every time we see the name God, it is the name Elohim in Hebrew. It is the almighty, all-powerful creator God. When we get to chapter two, the term for God switches, and you see it anywhere in the English where it says the Lord God instead of just God. It is the personal name of God, Yahweh. When we zoom in from chapter one to chapter two, and we focus in on the creation of man and woman, the name of God is changed here because now he is addressing himself in a personal description. Yahweh is the covenant keeping name of God that is only given to the people who are in relationship with him. It's not a title, it's not like doctor. It is his personal name. It is the same thing. Lots of people out here may know me as Shay or Mr. Sumlin or Pastor Shay, but when I go home, I get a different term. I get called dad by my kids. I get called boo and other things I'm not going to tell you in this room by my wife. I get different names because there's a different relationship that's going on here, there's intimacy. There's a deep level of intimacy and Satan knows this. And he knows that if he can create distance in your intimacy, it opens the door for the opportunity of rebellion because you're gonna have a harder time rebelling against that which you're not in intimate relationship with. And he changes the name back to Elohim. Did Elohim... Not say, no, 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 Eve should have stepped in right here. No, Yahweh, my father, he told us, but he goes with Elohim. He's starting to create distance here and cutting the legs of our trust. And third, he next seeks to plant seeds of doubt concerning God's generosity. Notice the kind of, he's kind of playing dumb here. He purposely misquotes God. Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In other words, are you sure about his word? Are you sure God is not holding out on you? You sure God actually wants what's best for you? Why would he withhold this? Are you sure you can trust him? You see, he misphrases this. He says, are you sure that God said, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God didn't say that. In chapter two, verses 16 and 17, the context there was not restriction. It was provision, an abundance of it. God said, you can eat, you can surely eat. That word surely in Hebrew is so emphatic. It literally means you can eat, eat means you can go for it. Every tree, not just some trees, every tree in the garden, it is yours. My beloved child, have at it. There's just one tree that you shall not eat because when you eat of it, you will surely die. Again, in fact, you will die, die. But the context is not on the one, the context is on the many that you can. It is like me, this is not a cruel thing. It's a beautiful thing. This is me saying to my five daughters, everything you want to eat in the kitchen, go for it. It's all yours, free for all. We, many of our dinners are called free for alls. Free for all, go get it, whatever you want, go get it. Except one thing, stay away from the dishwasher pods that are underneath the sink. Because in the day that you eat of it, you shall die, die. Now that's not a cruel thing. Not a cruel father for saying that. The focus is on everything. Go eat, have at it. Just stay away from this one thing. Trust me. And Satan plays off that. He misphrases it because he wants to sow a seed of doubt about God's generosity. He wants to move the woman away from the perspective that my God is for me and has given me everything that I need to moving her towards the one thing that God said to stay away from. God may be holding out on me. God is withholding good for me. And so he sows this seed and it works. Notice her response in verses two and three. And the woman said to the serpent, Now we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Three crucial mistakes that the woman makes with God's word right here that every one of us are prone to do as well. Number one, she minimizes the generosity of God. The seed that Satan sowed, got planted. And she backs off. She omits the word surely. She omits the word any. She's narrowing it down. She seems to play, be playing down the abundance of God's provision, falling into the hand of the restrictive miserly ogre God view. And second, she not only minimizes the generosity, she adds to the restrictions. God said not to eat it nor touch it. Did God say that? No. God never said to touch it. God, for all they care, they can do whatever they want. They can hang out around the tree. They can play catch with the fruit. They can do whatever they want with it. Just don't eat it. And what you see right here is the injection for the very first time in Scripture of legalism of a propensity within us to want to take the spirit of the law that God gives and add our own additional boundaries to it so that we can feel more justified around its prohibitions. And we can tell others that they have to do the same thing in order to please God. It is legalism at its finest. She minimizes this generosity. She adds to his restrictions. And thirdly, she weakens the penalty. She says, lest you die. She doesn't say, she doesn't quote God, surely on the day that you eat it, you will surely emphatically die, die. In your dying, you will die. She doesn't say that. Just lest you die. Maybe, maybe you will, maybe you won't. And though subtle, we can see the seeds of temptation by the serpent to doubt God and view him as repressive and restrictive and untrustworthy. And now they have already taken root in the woman's heart. And now that the seeds are there, watch Satan move in now for the kill shot on the last two tactics that he brings forth. The fourth thing that Satan does is he removes the consequences of sin through lie. Satan just straight lies to her. Now everything else prior to this is just playing with her, sowing seeds, you know, misquoting this. He just flat out lies. God said in the day you eat the tree, you should surely die, he just straight says, Surely you won't. God is wrong. Sin has no consequences. We are told in John 8 that Satan is the father of lies. We are told in Revelation 12, 9, he is the deceiver of the whole world. This is the first outright lie in the entire existence of humanity, let alone in Genesis. And isn't it interesting that the lie revolves around the consequences of judgment? That it's not going to happen. I find that so interesting. There is maybe nothing more popular even within Christianity today than denying the consequences of our sin. Uh, First of all, eternally, denying even the reality of hell has become increasingly popular. Denying penal substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus had to be punished for our sin because that's what the law demanded, we're seeing that erased by so many scholars and churches even today. That is divine child abuse. God would never have his son be punished for our sin. That's horrific. God is not a God of wrath. The first lie in the Bible is to get you to believe there is no consequence to sin. That sin is not as dangerous as we think it is. And even beyond just the eternal consequences, even on a day-to-day basis, we, are, we convince ourselves of this every day. God cannot be trusted sin has no consequences, we can get away with it, you can be free, nobody's gonna know, this isn't gonna do anything, this isn't gonna hurt anybody. Satan never tells you the truth about sin's destruction when he tempts you with it, never. Never tells you that that one night stand, that adultery with that other person is gonna wreck a marriage. It's going to wreck children. It's going to carry on beyond even your life into future generations. Never tells you that that one night of drunkenness is going to turn into years of irreversible shame on social media. Never tells us that that pornography that we view and engage in is objectifying the very men and women that God created and distorting the image of God and actually enslaving children. Never tells us that. Never tells us that gossip and slander, which we would define in the church as prayer requests, never tells us that that gossip and slander is going to destroy friendships. It's going to split churches and it's going to bolster atheism. Satan is a liar. He is crafty. And sin always has consequences. And that leads to the fifth and final deceit that he seeks after here. And after removing the consequences of sin through a lie gets us to ultimately replace God with ourselves. Look at this in verse five. Or uh, verse five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. He presents an alternative theory here for the woman to consider in this whole thing. God is holding out on you. God is withholding good from you. He knows that if you eat of this, you're gonna be just like him. And he doesn't want that. He wants this position for himself. Not to share it with you. He is holding out on you. And isn't that ironic? That's the same thing that originated with Lucifer in Isaiah 14 in the very beginning. I want to be like the most high God. And he wouldn't let me. So now I'm gonna tell you the same thing. God is holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. And that's so tragic because you know what? They were already like him. They were made in his image to try to tell them that God doesn't want you to be like him. That's trying to sell me my own house when I already own it. I mean, it's trying to get me to buy into something that I already possess. I'm already made in the image of God. This ultimately is about moral autonomy. That's what this lie is about. This whole scene in Genesis 3 is about moral autonomy, that I can be God apart from God. I can be God. Understand this, Satan is not just offering the woman fruit in this moment. He's offering her a throne. That's what he's after. And this is the epicenter of every temptation that we face. It is never about just the object of the thing that is alluring to us. It's about the throne that's behind it. It's about the need for autonomy, the need for me to determine what is good, and my definitions are better than God's. The need for me to be outsmarting God, the need for me to be able to not withhold what I want because I think this is what's good for me. He doesn't know. I want to be on that throne. He doesn't need to be. That's what this is all about. In Romans, no, it's no secret that Romans 1 and Paul's great defense of the gospel and the depravity of human sin, he begins in Romans 1 going, this is all the way back from the beginning when the creation wants to exchange the truth about God for a lie. And we wanna worship the creation over the creator, even have the creation worship us over the creator. We want to be God. And our pride our desire for moral autonomy is ultimately what breaks everything in this moment. I want you to know Satan only speaks twice in this whole passage. He doesn't have to do a lot. He doesn't even take on the form of evil that you would expect him to take on. It's in Hollywood's version here. Seems almost too nice, almost too reasonable, almost too clever because that's how sin works. And these five tactics that we've looked at, they're all attacking two things. Is God good? Is his word good? Can I trust God? And can I trust God's word? It's what he's picking at heart. At the end of the day, those are the two things that describe why we rebel and why our earth is as broken as it is, why there is so much conflict and turmoil in this world. Because we've tried to, to replace God with ourselves. And he'll use lies to do this. Satan will use half truths to do this. He's really good at showing us the bait and hiding the hook. And now that the hook is set, watch temptation fulfill and finish its course. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. You know, John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, the definition, the hallmarks of what worldliness is says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, listen to these three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. And those three things that John describes, those are the exact three temptations that the woman succumbs to here in verse six. The lust of the flesh is that it's good for food. Oh, this is gonna be really good. This is gonna satisfy my cravings. The lust of the eyes, this thing is a delight to the eyes. It's beautiful, it's attractive, it's alluring. And the boastful pride of life is that this fruit is gonna help make me wise. I'm gonna be like God. I'm gonna be as smart as God. The physical, the emotional, and the spiritual temptations are all present right here. And there's always a progression to sin, by the way. James chapter one puts it this way, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, this is fishing language, by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Oh, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Even the way Moses writes this text, records it down in verse six, or in this whole passage, actually, there's an obvious progression in the text. It's, it reads like a staccato. It's, it's one domino falling on top of another rapidly. She saw, she takes, she eats, she gives. It's the same with us today. We see, we take, we eat, and we give. Now, you may have noticed there at the end of Verse six, maybe the saddest line in this passage that she also gave to her husband who was there with her. It's like this ta-da moment right there. You're like, whoa, he was there the whole time? I thought this was a one-on-one. Now, again, if you had read your Hebrew, you would notice every time in this passage where the word you is mentioned, it's in the plural. He was always there. Adam was there the whole time. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that he is far from an innocent bystander. Paul's commentary in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, tells us the woman was deceived, but Adam was not. We always read that in the negative. Oh, she's the one that got deceived, Adam didn't. That's not how you're meant to read it. It's an indictment on him. She was duped indeed, maybe through ignorance or na- na- tif- uh, being naive. I'm just gonna go there. Whatever it may be, Naivety? Thank you. Maybe. We don't know. She was duped, certainly. The point is, Adam was not. He knew exactly what was happening, and he did nothing about it. That's the point. He just went silent with known truth and passivity. her, Her actions may have been innocent, we don't know, but his inaction was sin with a high hand. He knew exactly what he was doing. Rather than standing up and defending his bride and defending the truth that God had given, he went silent, he went passive, like watching a pedestrian in oncoming traffic when you have a chance to do something about it and you don't, that's what's going on right here. Rather than leading and protecting as God had designed him to do, he follows right into error. So already the created order of God has now been subverted with both the man and the woman setting aside their divine roles for sin. And as we'll see next week, even though Eve is the the first one to eat, it is Adam who is going to be held responsible for this sin. Not only as the localized head of his marriage, but as the federal head of all humanity, he will be held responsible. Now in verse 7, close here, we see the ensuing results. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. In other words, they got exactly what they wanted. They had their eyes opened. But it was to a world that they could have never possibly imagined. What once looked so good to the eye now has to be covered up. Shame has been introduced for the very first time in human history. And it's in a stark contrast. It's meant to be read this way. The last verse of 225 of chapter 2, they were naked and unashamed. Now just seven verses later, it's the opposite. They are shamed and not naked. What happened in seven verses The entire world has changed. Something catastrophic has happened. We've gone to innocence to total brokenness. And in doing so, we now see the very first act of man made religion. And that is the need to self protect, the need to self atone for our sin. From this moment forward, mankind's primary instinct, yours and mine, when we sin, is to do just what Adam and Eve did and go cover ourselves up through our own works. That's what we wanna do. We go play the biggest game of hide and seek to try to cover our shame. Rather than turning to God for his mercy, we simply try to play cover up. And so shame enters the picture, fear enters the picture, We are afraid to be exposed for who we truly are. What looked like freedom is now slavery. This is not what the garden was intended to be like. It's a sad play here. You think about nakedness. Nakedness started as one thing and became something else. And in many ways, we almost have a shadow of it in our lives. I would be willing to bet every one of us in here, when you were two years old, ran naked through your parents' party somewhere, some public event, you just came out naked running through and you had no qualms about it. Ah! and everybody laughs and so cute. If you ran through a party naked right now, we're calling the police. What naked is today is not what naked used to be. And this is exactly what happens. Innocence is gone and cover up begins. Now next week, we'll look at all the fallout that comes from the fall. And we'll look at the consequences and the judgments that not only broke Adam and Eve, but broke all of humanity including you and I. But before we end, I cannot end here on the darkest day in human history without bringing us to the light of hope that has been given us. Because this Adam that fell this first Adam, Romans 5 tells us, as bad as, it, as what this first Adam brought into the world with sin and destruction, there is another Adam, not a second Adam, but a final Adam that has been given to us by God to come undo what the first Adam did for us, both in his living and in his dying. And his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in his living. And imagine this, whereas the epicenter of Genesis 3 is man trying to become like God, the answer to our problem is that God is going to become like man. And he is going to descend and he is going to take on human flesh and he is gonna live the life that you and I have failed to live through Adam in our disobedience, and he is gonna live in obedience. He is gonna come fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law. He is gonna live in obedience to God's commands in a way that the first Adam did not. And we see it in Matthew chapter four, right at the outset of Jesus' ministry. He goes off after his baptism into a garden on repeat, but it's unlike the first garden. Instead of being full of food, it's full of famishment. It's a desert, it's wilderness. And there he is met by the same serpent of old. And you know what Satan entices Jesus with? The same three things that came before Eve. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And unlike the first Adam, the second of Adam, the last Adam is obedient. And he is so intimate with the father that he knows nothing but the word of the father. And he counters every temptation with the truth of God's word because he believes what's in God's word is better and more satisfying than anything that could ever be offered by the serpent. And for you and I becomes our model as well of how to fight sin starts with intimacy with God, not distance. And it comes in trusting in his word and his divine decree, even when we may disagree with it in our flesh. We believe that he's good, we believe that his word is good. But it didn't just end with his life, it ended with his death. In his dying, he will come and he will pay the penalty for sin. Remember in the day that you eat of it, you shall die, die. Jesus came to surely die for us. He came to fulfill the payment that you and I had no ability to pay. And he laid down his life on that cross as a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God so that through his shed blood, our sins would be covered. Our shame would be covered through him. And Romans 5 tells us, every one of us that have been born are born into Adam. We too have all sinned and deserve to die. Jesus came to make that payment. But here's what I want you to see as this text close out. It is an interesting juxtaposition. Genesis 3 is essentially a serpent offering a meal that promised life, but in reality brought death. And in that meal, the serpent essentially says, take and eat and you shall live. And they took and they eat and they ate and they died. Fast forward the tape on the night before Jesus's crucifixion. He's having a meal with his disciples, the Passover meal that we celebrated last week on Good Friday and Thursday. And he is taking that meal. And I believe this event in Genesis three has got to be in his mind because in that meal, Jesus holds up two elements, and he too, according to Matthew twenty-six, is going to say, "Take and eat." Only this meal is going to lead to life if we consume it. And So here's what I want to do. Those that are helping with communion right now, I want you to go ahead, grab the elements in the back and begin passing those out. But I want y'all to stay dialed in for just another minute here. Don't miss this. There is a better meal that is offered to you in that meal, Jesus held up two elements, the bread and the wine. And he said, the bread is my body, which is broken for you. And I want you to take and eat in remembrance of me. And the, blood, the wine is my blood, the blood of a new covenant that's been poured out for your sins to cover your shame to cover the penalty that you deserved. I've taken it for you. And I want you to take and I want you to drink because when you eat this meal, it will undo every other meal that came before me. It'll undo that meal in Genesis 3. It'll bring you into everlasting life. It'll bring you back into intimacy with the Father. It'll bring you into righteousness. It will be satisfying to God as a holy and pleasing aroma. And Jesus offers this meal and says, take and eat And I want you to know, this meal that we're about to take is still on practice all these years later because it's a way of the church remembering and memorializing what Jesus has provided for us. This meal that we're about to take is intended for Christians, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. One of the ways that we help affirm that as best we can this side of heaven is through local church membership where we get to share our testimonies and understand that our, our trust is in Jesus alone, by faith alone, and his blood alone, by his grace alone for us. And so that's why we say this meal is ultimately intended here for members of Northway Church, but also we open it up anybody that's from another church in good standing, put their faith in the blood-bought salvation of Jesus. Come to the proverbial table right now and remember what Jesus has done for you. If you've yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ, we would ask you to hold off on that meal. Don't take this. Instead, we would ask you to consider the claims of Jesus Christ. Consider the effects and the results of what the decisions of the first Adam did, and then consider the claims and the effects, the results of what the last Adam has done. We pray that you would put your trust in Jesus Christ. You would be saved, have your sins forgiven and secured for everlasting life in the arms of God through Jesus Christ. That's what we pray and hope for you. For all those that have done that, let us come, take and eat. Let us remember now through the bread here, reminding what Jesus said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. Church to Christ we eat. And then Christ reminding us, the covering you need is not some fig leaves to try to hide your shame. The covering you need, the only one that could ever truly cover you and wash you as white as snow is the crimson red of my blood. And Jesus invites us to take and drink the blood of the new covenant, which is Christ and his forgiveness for us. We drink to him. We are promised as long as we keep taking this meal, we are heralding the death of Christ and the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray to that end. Father, thank you that on the darkest day in human history, when sin entered the world and fractured, every human relationship, even fractured the earth as we'll see next week, but more importantly, fractured our relationship with you, that you gave us a way forward. You offered us, when we could offer nothing to ourselves, you offered us a better meal. And so, oh God, oh God, we herald the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ that has saved us and made us new. I pray for every single person in this room. May we not leave this room without hope, that the hope that they need to counter the tactics of the enemy and the lies that we face today is found not in our own moralism, not in our own good works. It is found in the work of Jesus Christ. May we rest in him and find the freedom that our soul so aches for. We pray this for your glory, certainly for our good. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 1115, and 4 p.m. And would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.